our attention in a rather timely way. It's sort of funny. I wrote this sermon two weeks ago for last Sunday because I fully expected we were going to have worship uh, until that storm rolled over our state. But it's interesting how um, having kind of reread it this week and studied it up and fine-tuned it, uh, how timely is and it is. And I think it's actually better that you hear it this week. Uh, God has been good even in this. And so today, we're going to continue to study this last teaching uh, section in Philippians chapter 4. We're at the tail end of this, this book. And over these past months, we have been looking at uh, two very important themes in the Christian life. The first addressed how to follow Jesus in such a way that we learn to experience the dynamic nature of the Christian life. Where there is life in Jesus, certain things should be happening in our life. There's a dynamic kind of John 10.10 abundant life that Jesus brings out of us. And we talked at length, all of these sermons are online, we talked at length about how these rhythms, these life rhythms we dance to, should be that of gospel, a devout love and pursuit of the Jesus of Scripture, uh, community, our love for those men and women who also love Jesus, and mission, our love for those men and women who do not even care for Jesus. This is a great opportunity right now in our world for mission, to serve those who are without Christ, who have needs, the same needs we have. The second we started looking at in chapter 4, and this is sort of the, the segue into what we're looking at today and what we looked at two weeks ago. It addresses what it means to be the type of person who experiences Jesus' joy because you've learned to fix or dwell on the good nature of God in our life. And so simply put, the first truth teaches us or taught us how to experience Christ's joy. The latter, these ideas we're talking about over these next weeks, teach us how to remain in it. Because that is a rhythm. If you understand sort of the analogy we've used, dancing in such a way, having your life set up to where you dance to the, the, the rhythms of gospel, community, and mission, if you stop dancing to these things, it's very likely you might start to see some of your joy dissipate. And so two, two weeks ago, we talked about how when we really believe God is good to us, right? that was the kind of uh, inaugural sermon for this block of teaching. If we really believe that God is good to us, then the natural byproduct of that is that we no longer need to turn to anything else to find peace and joy in life. That doesn't mean we won't have things in our life that we derive peace and joy from. It just means that ultimately, the only immutable, unchanging source of peace and joy in our life is our Father in Heaven. And so to apply that expectation onto something that is not God, as if it is God, is likely going to be detrimental for the relationship and detrimental for your ability to have joy. Today, we're going to look at another important joy-producing truth. It's when we really begin to believe that God is a God who is in control of life. And what happens here is when you genuinely believe that the Lord is in control, and we'll unpack a little bit of what I mean by that, then what starts to happen is that you will see uh, a, a decreasing of, your, of, of, of fear. That's what happens. Your fear starts to kind of fade away. The more you recognize that God is a good God who cares for you and is in, in control, the less likely you are to live in fear of anything in life. Now, we've got a lot of ground to cover today, so I want to jump right in and get started. And there's really one main idea we're going to work around. Uh, we'll look at it from two angles, but one big idea. And it is this. One of the key relational teachings about God and the Christian faith is that he is in control. And I frame this from the angle of it being a relational teaching. This is a theological teaching, but you have to remember that theology is God's revelation of the way he interacts with us. It is his self-declaration of who he is to the world. And if you understand the main thing God is trying to do as he's teaching the world about us through scripture, is he's trying to help us understand how to relate to him. So when we speak of this, God being in control, 
for you theological heads, the sovereignty of God. Very important word. What I want you to understand is that this is not some abstract dialogue about theology. It is a, a theological conversation. But it is a theological conversation that has a, a complete and absolute effect on life. The way you live right now today. And much like the life rhythm we talked about two weeks ago, God being a good God, you know, we highlighted at the beginning of that talk that, that that's sort of a cliche statement in the Christian world at times. We, we throw it around, oftentimes understanding the goodness of that statement and the, the significance of it. And in a morning like this, when we are singing songs about this and looking at situations in our world that at times seem contrary to that, this is really where your, the depth of your understanding in your heart of this idea is really going to make sense or not make sense. The same is true when we talk about this idea of God being a, gr a great God, a God that is so great that he is in control, that he is so grand and so, so powerful that he is actually managing the affairs of the world, even at times when we feel like maybe that's not happening. So I, I want to just say again, not because I don't have anything to better, to better to say, but because it's worth saying that God is great is a term that can be cliche. The power of this promise, God is in control, at times has almost been trivialized because of the overuse of it. At times, it's been a catchphrase. Maybe you've been on the receiving or the giving end of this, where you're talking to somebody with substantial need or hurt, and you can see that they are emotionally distressed or spiritually distressed or physically in need, and they're going through a really tough time, and you say something like, well, it's going to be okay because God is in control. Now, that's a very true statement, but at times, maybe our lack of understanding what that means or delivering that, that word in an inappropriate time, can come across as maybe trite or cold or callous, as true as it is. So while this phrase might sound cliche, I guess I want to draw a distinction here, that when it is truly believed, understood, and applied to your heart, it actually becomes something that's anything but cliche. It becomes something that is powerful and can bring peace and joy to our lives. So deeply understanding and believing what Jesus says in Luke about turning to your Heavenly Father rather than worry and anxiety, is one of the ways you find and remain in God's everlasting joy and peace. When you're dealing with circumstances that are anything but joyful and peaceful. And here's why. When Jesus makes you aware of the magnificence of his presence, of his promises, of his love, the troubles of the temporal world tend to fade away. Now, we just sang this song. I asked our worship team earlier in the week, to close our set this morning with a song that you just sang. It's an old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And if you're over 45 or 50, you probably sang that song before. If you're under 50 or 45, maybe you haven't. I don't know. But I do know that that's one of those amazing songs that has sort of been relegated to the history books. But I don't think it should be in the history books because it's a pretty powerful song that communicates something very deep and rich for us. Song is Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, and I, it captures this truth perfectly that we're speaking about this morning. And I want to reread, the words will be behind me. I want to reread the main section we wrote, or song, sung, excuse me. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. This is the, a more complete version of it. There's light. Look at the Savior. And life more abundant and free. And then what we sang today is this closing stanza, this powerful truth to meditate on. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now, I want you to notice something about the lyrics in this hymn. Uh, and this is going to be true for any kind of a teaching that references God's goodness or God being in control or just the way that God interacts with us. 
I want you to notice that in, in that hymn, much like the scripture, that song is not a song declaring God makes our problems go away. It's not a song declaring that God will take our problems away, although that can happen, and at times does. I don't know that that is the normative way that God works, though. There's a big difference in those two statements. One saying, you know, turn your eyes to Jesus and he'll take my problems away. And the other saying, turn your eyes to Jesus and, and the, the things of earth start to grow strangely dim. One signifies a bit of a, it's almost like a, a scale of economy, where I think in our world what we want when challenge arises is we want God to just take the stuff off the scale. We want the problem to go away so we are like in balance towards greatness, right? Good stuff and happiness. I don't know that that's the way God always works, though. I think what, a, what a, a song like this communicates and a verse like what uh, Jesus is talking about and Luke communicates is that the more you dwell on the goodness and the greatness of your God, the more likely it is that the scale tips. The circumstance is not necessarily removed, but your ability to press into Jesus during it actually makes them fade away. In other words, it gives you the ability, the strength, the perseverance to overcome a circumstance. Because as you know, circumstances in life just keep coming up. I mean, ideally, maybe in a certain world, we would want no circumstances that are troubling or traumatic for us. That would be easy, but that is not life. We don't get through 80 years on this earth living like that. Most of us have very significant things we deal with. Sometimes they're natural disasters. Other times they're issues in our family, vocation, health issues. There's a myriad of things here that, that create circumstances that can trouble the soul. And in all of them, we are never promised that God will take our promise away. Rather, he is always teaching us when we fix our eyes on his promises, we'll have his perspective and hope as we go through them. And in that way, we are able to overcome them. And so when I say this morning that God is a good God two weeks ago and God is a great God, so we need to, we need to question whether or not we're being driven by fear and anxiety in life or the goodness and the greatness of God. What we're really saying is that we are at a place right, to really move away from fear and into God being great. It means that we're saying we're at a place in our lives where we trust that God is so good to us that even when the circumstances of life appear to be falling apart, and maybe in some situations are, we have an inner trust and peace that they're not. Because we know that for every fear we face, there is a direct promise of God that we can use to stand strong against it. And I'd like to describe this. Anytime we talk about peace in this room, I give you this same illustration because it's the best one on earth, I think. I like to describe this, visualize this for a moment. Our ability to, to navigate the storms of life, the trials of life, the challenges of life. To believe that God is in control of our lives, even when it doesn't feel this way. If you've ever seen a, a Coast Guard cutter, which is a rescue boat. It's a boat that has, it's a small boat, but it has the amazing ability to sail through incredibly rough seas. This is the best visual explanation I think we can give to describe what it means to trust in the control of God in your life when the seas of life are not necessarily amicable towards us. Those ships amaze me because even though they are not very big, they just plow through waves like they are nothing. It's, it's almost like a hot knife cutting through butter. They roll and they rock, but they stay stable and push through the worst of seas. They are able to take the waves of the ocean head on. And as a result, they're able to accomplish something pretty powerful. In the Coast Guard world, they're, they're rescuing people. They're out there basically helping people stay alive. This is sort of the same analogy for us in a spiritual sense. This is what it means to believe that God is in control. Seldom does it change the condition of the sea in life. But it always strengthens and empowers the vessel that is sailing through them. And when we endure and persevere and overcome, God tends to use us to do pretty great things. When you're not neutered by a circumstance in life, and you actually can aid others as they deal with the circumstance. For example, I've mentioned multiple times today, there's likely going to be an opportunity for us to serve another church in our state. 
But if we're so marred by what's going on in our world, it's going to be very hard to see that there's a world far beyond our own needs. Our needs matter. Don't hear me saying anything to the contrary. But I'm saying our needs are not the only thing that matter in life. God can do pretty powerful things through us when we recognize that he is a good God who is in control. A great example of this truth can be found in the story of David and Goliath. Uh, Dave just prayed a, a verse, a song, a, a, a prayer from David. Because he is a guy who really went through some substantial stuff in life. I mean, from the very outset of his life, he is a person who did not necessarily have an easy, easy life. And there's a great story, uh, the story of David and Goliath, which is funny because this is sort of like over the past 50 years, the story of David and Goliath has become like the most popular children's Bible story on earth. But it's actually a pretty interesting historical and theological event if you understand the significance of it. It's a great kid's story, but it's much more than just a kid's story. Because what you have here is David, sort of at the outset of his career of serving God, is, he finds himself in the middle of this, this major military battle against the Philistines, who are like the arch enemy of the Israelite in the Old Testament. And in this story, David represents the whole nation of Israel when he chooses to step out and face Goliath alone. The point of this is that this is actually historical reality. Oftentimes, large warring armies, rather than you know, subjecting two major armies to battle, they would champion their best fighters. And they would say, you know, out of these two men, whomever wins the day carries the battle and will spare you know, multiple thousands of lost lives. And so what happens here is in a very historical way, a, a war is about to take place, a battle. And David, sort of ironically, is not the greatest champion that that army has. There are other people who have more experience in battle, who are not identified as a runt in the scripture, who are people with an ac accomplished combat records. Those are the type of people that you would expect when you call your champions out. You'd expect those types of people to come out and lead the army. But that's not what happens. Despite overwhelming odds and the fact that he was likely the least qualified in that whole army, he steps out in this great act of courage when much larger and stronger men would not. But you have to ask a question, like, what is it that causes somebody to do this? What causes David to risk his life to be able to defend his people? Well, it's the same principle we're talking about today. David knows and says this to his enemy. He knows the battle he fights, although he is physically engaged in it, it's actually not his battle. It is the Lord's to win. He looks at this situation and he says, yeah, I'm a part of this, but ultimately I am not in control of this. It is my God who is the one that wins this battle. His confidence is not in his ability to manage or control this situation. That's where we go wrong. There are circumstances in life that if we try to manage or control them in unhealthy ways, we will just be defeated by them. What happens here is he recognizes deeply he trusts in the fact that God is in control of his situation. And he tells Goliath straight up, hey, you don't, you don't face me. You, you face my father in heaven. You face my God. Now, the one part of the story I share it with you today just because it should be shared. The one part of the story we don't tell our kids because it's fairly graphic is that this battle ends with David holding Goliath's head. That's the way it ends. This is in the Old Testament world, in the ancient Near Eastern world, this is a sign of absolute conquering. In other words, what happens here is David just doesn't skirt through this one. His trust and hope in a circumstance that is beyond his ability to deal with is completely in his God, and he is victorious. He conquers, capital C. And the reason is because his victory is not his own. It is birthed out of a confidence he has in his God. It's an important truth to know. Circumstances are overcome when we have confidence and trust in the God who is in control of them. And I'll give you another example of this, straight from the mouth of Jesus. 
I won't share these verses with you, but I'll give you the general storyline. In Mark chapters 4 through 5, Jesus shows us he's in control of every area of life. And I would encourage you when you leave this place today to read those chapters. There's a series of interactions with people that going on in that, those two chapters. And what we learned in that passage is Jesus is essentially in control of everything. He is addressing issues in the natural world as he calms a storm. He is addressing the physical world as he heals a sick woman. He is addressing the spiritual world as he puts a demon in his place. He even brings a girl back from the dead. You know, and we know where that's going in the Christian narrative. He's, it's a premonition, if you will, of what he's going to do, ultimately overcome the grave and redeem us. All of these stories are meant to highlight something, that Jesus is in control. And while the Bible is clear, I want you to hear me when I say this. The Bible is clear. It's in a somewhat mysterious way at times. Uh, sometimes we, we might believe that God is in control, but not fully understand it. Other times, uh, in human choices are involved in this control. Meaning, like, we actually have an effect on this whole thing. We can never do anything that's going to, you know, remove God's will from the earth. But we can do things that, that obviously alter things. We have to recognize that God is working through a lot of situations in our lives, including our lives. And sometimes the things we do bring upon us circumstances that are not great. Sometimes it is really us that is at the root of why there is a, a trial in life. But through all this, ultimately, God is in control of every event in action. And he is always working for his glory and for our good. And he can even orchestrate good things out of pure evil. My favorite example of this is the cross itself. Our story begins there and ends here. The greatest example we have of this reality is the conspiracy to kill Jesus. Remember, the events and the accusations that put Jesus on the cross, by today's standards, would, by legal standards, they're considered pretty corrupt and crooked. If you understand that narrative, it's a slew of accusations and falsities. Yet it is enough to drive a mob to take his life. It's an unjust taking of life. And in that case, I am sure if you were in that immediate moment and you saw Christ being unjustly murdered, it would look like things were a little bit out of control. Absolutely. It would look like here we have a God and the claimed son of God who's telling us that he's in control of all things and he's going to you know, redeem the world. All these things are going on and yet Jesus winds up dying in a way that is very contrary to the way you would expect a king to lose his life. The beauty of the cross is that through that mess... God fulfills his promise to send the world a savior. In other words, it is through the mess, it is through the circumstance, one that doesn't look necessarily good from the earthly perspective, that God does something pretty amazing. And that section of scripture in Mark is one well worth reading when you leave this place. And if you do read it, you'll find there, there is a thematic hope in every fear situation. Every single thing Jesus addresses, it can sort of be summed up like this. He deals with the situation, and then in Mark 5.36, Jesus says, you know, don't fear, believe. In every situation, do not fear, believe. Do not fear your circumstance. Believe in the God who is in control of it. In every situation, life, death, sickness, hurricanes, he says the same thing. Trade your fear and trust me. Now, here's an interesting question. Trade your fear and trust me is what we're striving for. But have you ever wondered why for so many of us, our default is to fear our situation rather than trusting God in it? I mean, this is a natural human story, right? We sort of, we trust fear and, and, and walk away from Jesus at times. Why is that? Why is it that we often give an ultimate authority over our life to fear instead of God? Well, it's a simple answer with sort of a, a, a complicated application. It is likely because we don't believe that God is great. It goes back to this statement. It is likely that when we hear the words of Jesus that say, you know, trust my father, trust me, uh, don't, don't migrate towards fear. 
wrestle with this. What happens is, is the scale is tipping. And for some reason, we can't believe that God is good enough to, to not be afraid. What happens here is we start trusting more in this, the frailty of the circumstance or the fragility of fear rather than the God who is orchestrating or the God who is behind us, the God who is supporting us through those circumstances. Furthermore, when you trade trusting God for fear, you typically end up in one of two places. And I have talked about this from a couple of angles over the years. When we talked about um, praying, we sort of talked about two kinds of actions. There is a very proactive action. In other words, folks who go to the, uh, folks who go to the plow, meaning when a circumstance arises in life, we're the type of people who we see an issue and we just try to fix it. And then there are those who sort of go to the knee. There, there are those who are more inclined just to pray about something rather than acting. And what I want to say here is that the same is true for, for how we understand who the Lord is, how he's working in our lives, and how we actually address fear and anxiety in our life. Except I'll use two different terms. People do one of two things here. When, when you are presented with a situation, oftentimes we migrate to extremes. And we either give up in a situation or we knuckle up, which is a term I've used before here. You either give up and get apathetic or you kind of knuckle up and get anxious. Let me explain briefly. We'll begin by looking at what it means to give up. A circumstance in life sometimes can be so overwhelming, no matter what the issue is, that sometimes when we, we get to this place where we stop trusting for the Christian that God is in control, that he still has our best interests at heart, what happens is we start getting very defeated by the circumstance and we start to adopt a state of hopelessness. Maybe even escapism, which is the bigger, the bigger of the two problems. You get so overwhelmed that you just choose to shut down and avoid it. You know, in the proverbial world, we call this like putting your head in the sand. You might even start to deny reality. So what happens with people in the give up camp, at least what I've noticed over the years, is they learn to live in a sophisticated state of denial. They sort of become expert at talking a really good game through the situation. And it's an incredibly challenging heart posture to speak into because their life is framed by three words that if they were true would be life altering, but oftentimes are not true. And so they're life altering in a different way. They tend to say a person who's, who's defeated and in the given up camp, they'll tend to say things like, I know that. Let me explain what I mean. Here's where the problem is. So if you're a person who's without joy, maybe this is you right now. You've had a really hard week. And somebody says, hey, um, I've noticed you're without joy, um, but Jesus wants you to have joy. You'll likely say, like, I, I know that. Like, you know that to one degree, but you just don't really experience that. And that's why you'll never experience it. Or maybe sometimes our joy is robbed because there's a sin issue in life. And somebody says, hey, you know, Jesus, I love you, but this here is, might be one of the reasons why, like, you're having a hard time in life right now. Like, maybe we should talk about this particular issue in your life. And a lot of times people will say, yeah, yeah, I know. I know I should be doing that. I know the Bible says, I know that. Uh, just not going to do that. And so we persist. Like, we've given up that we just are sort of like letting the river of life take the canoe wherever it goes. They say like, hey, I know, like, if I would seek God's grace, even though I can't even feel this, I know that if I would just say, God, I can't even feel your grace and your mercy, but I want to, I know that it's very likely God... God would start doing something in my life if I could just get before him and admit this. There's a really good chance I might pull out of this. I know that. I'm just not going to do that. That's a problem. That's the defeatist attitude. Now, I want you to listen to me. If you know, if, if this is you, if you've ever said this or you're saying this now or you're talking to somebody who says this, there's one key thing you have to know about this, and it is this. You don't know that. We don't know that. When we say we know this stuff, what the scripture means is that we know it to the place where God is able to use it to do something in our heart. Because the evidence that you know something in the Christian faith is when you begin to orient your life around that truth. Otherwise, you don't know it. So if you have sensed in your own life or have seen in others' lives, or maybe now you're dealing with people with significant challenges in their lives from this storm, 
Be mindful of this and be merciful if you see it. And certainly stay away from it if you are dealing with it. The second option is to kind of knuckle up or to array your horses for battle. And this is an interesting one because the person who does this, they, they attack these issues from life from the exact opposite angle. And, but they still end up at the same place, hopelessness and, and defeat. You know, I, I use this term knuckling up because it was a little term we had when I was in my teens. It kind of signified your back was against the wall and you really had to do something to, to address a situation in front of you. And what's interesting about this is that the person, unlike the person who gives up on their circumstances, the person who does this, who sort of grabs life by the, uh, the horns, they grab the bull and they try to wrestle it to the ground, um, they're anything but apathetic or defeated at the beginning. They attempt to restore joy to their life by addressing every issue and then devising a plan to fix them. They, they sit down and they say, man, look at all this. And then they get out their phone or their little sheet of paper or however they do it. And they, they get a spreadsheet out and they devise a plan. They got on a tenth, Tuesday the 10th at 5 p.m. I'm going to start dealing with this. And they go through all this stuff. And what tends to happen here is they start enacting all these plans to fix stuff. And so this person will never struggle with apathy. I can guarantee you, though, at some point they'll struggle with anxiety. And let me explain why. The more you start trying to control every area of your life, the more you start trying to micromanage every circumstance, the more you are going to realize there are way more things in your life than you could ever hope to control. And there are a slew of things that are just physically impossible for us to control. Let me give you a, a real-world example of this. So uh, when hurricanes come and they're close, we leave. I can share you the reasons for this uh, at another time. But, you know, after our experience with Hurricane Katrina, we get a day away from here so we can be back as soon as we can. But we do not stay for them. And I thought, like, in 2005, I would have told you this is a great plan to deal with hurricanes. But what I learned about Hurricane Irma is that you could not get away from this hurricane. We went to Tallahassee first, my family, because I, I have family up there. And we were like, cool, on Thursday and Friday, we're like, we're going to have to leave this place because they were projecting it to move west. And then it did. It flew right over Tallahassee. And then we went to Charleston. That was a whole other story because we thought we were good there. And then it turned out that the thing was so big it went there. And I remember sitting in that hotel. We were safe and good to go. But I remember thinking, like, I got the best plan on earth. Ask my wife. I had egress points up to Tennessee. Anywhere we wanted to go, I had places to get us away from this thing. And I realized I cannot go anywhere. This is so beyond my ability. I just have to find a place to sit this one out. It's a perfect example. Try to control a situation. Try to be thoughtful about a situation, which I'm not discouraging. I'll get to this here in a moment. But at times what happens is your situation is going to exceed your ability to take notes or write out plans. And at that point what happens is exit joy enter anxiety. So whether it's giving up or knuckling up, when you live as if God is not in control, you'll eventually embrace the gods of fear and anxiety. There's no other way to go. Those false gods function like a God, like a real God. They cultivate a certain way of living. And what they do is they constantly remind you of every area of weakness in your life. They breed unrest. And we talked about this two weeks ago. No human heart wants to live with unrest in their heart. No person wants unrest in their right mind, wants unrest and tension. Living like this is a sign that a person has ultimately stopped trusting God. And it is ultimately, uh, a, it's a way, a coping mechanism in life. And this leads me to the second truth I want to share with you today. So we've talked about the importance of recognizing deeply that God is in control and asking God to provide us the grace and the mercy to believe that in the seasons of life where we don't. But I want to go a different direction here. And I want to say that one of the marks of a person who does not believe that God is in control is when they try to control every area of their life. This is how I want to begin to wrap up this morning. So living like this is as common as it is futile, and it will rob you of all your peace and joy in your life. I want to leave you this morning with, uh, with some hope, no doubt, but with the greatest symptom that evidences we have an inability to believe about the greatness of God. 
And I want to be clear here when I say this, uh, I'm not encouraging laziness or negligence when it comes to managing life. Uh, I'm not saying, neither does the scripture, that we shouldn't take a personal ownership in everything we do and say, that when stuff comes before us, we should do our best under heaven to pray and to labor in a way that solves problems. I'm not saying that. In fact, what I'm saying here is it's quite the opposite. I just want to make sure we have some, some Christian balance in it as we approach life in this way. I'm asking us today to proactively dwell on this truth, the truth that trusting in God that he is in control, it was not given to us to relieve us of our responsibilities. That's sort of why this statement gets cliche at times. If you've ever had somebody like, for example, maybe you've actually talked to somebody um, and you say like, hey, I'm really hungry or I'm in need or you've seen this and like God's in control. And you're like, I know, but you got a can of soup. Can I have it? Right. That's a problem here. That's a problem. This is where we have a negligence issue. When I say God is in control, that likely that doesn't mean that we just act like there's nothing we should ever be doing. It's not to relieve us of responsibility, but it's also not to break us when those responsibilities really exceed our ability to function in them. These truths, this promise is given to us to give us a peace as we navigate the responsibilities we have in life. And that's really where the mystery of our actions and God's sovereignty come together. And let me say this. I don't mean mystery like that. We've got to be confused about this. I'm just saying mystery from the angle that we will likely never have every minute detail we want in a circumstance in life. But we know enough from scripture and life experience, most likely, to be able to navigate circumstances healthily and well. And so this negligence philosophy is one of the, the major examples of misunderstanding this truth. Another side of the spectrum is when you only believe you, that if you deal with something, if you manhandle it uh, by embracing a heavy-handed control attitude, unless you function like that, your world is going to fall apart. And this is where, I mean, honestly, we can get to the place where we really believe if we don't strong arm an issue at hand, our life will fall apart. And the irony of this is that it's a desperate attitude. It's a desperate attempt, oftentimes attempting to keep life together. But most likely over time, we just can't sustain that. We want to ripping life apart. And so when you live this way, you try to carry the world on your shoulders. It's that great uh, statue of Atlas bearing the burden of the world, right? That's considered a pretty superhuman feat. Not everybody can do that. And according to Jesus, only he is capable of doing that. And so what happens here is you, you no longer can rest. If you get to this place, here's a good sign, and a good evidence, if you will, of whether or not you're functioning like Atlas in your life. If you can't rest, if you can't look at a circumstance and breathe through it, it is very likely that you might be bearing a larger globe than you can handle. And what happens here is in an attempt to keep your life together, it likely falls apart. The reality here is at that point, it might already be falling apart. And so here are some of the major warning signs that, that, that show you're trying to play the role of a sovereign God in your own life, that you're beginning to imbibe some of the rhythms that only God can practice. Think about your vocation or your family. We'll merge these two together. It's when you have a great job that you love, but maybe it starts wearing you out. And there are times when our jobs wear us out. There's no question. But maybe it's not the job that's wearing you out. Maybe it's because of a, a self-imposed pressure, a workload you've handed to yourself. Or maybe there's stress in your home. And what's happening is, is yeah, there's stuff going on, but because you're in this sort of circle, this, this cul-de-sac of emotion and spirituality, what's happening is you're just like throwing gasoline on a fire and making a problem worse than it is. You've lost perspective. Maybe it's that you, uh, you have a lot of sleepless nights these days because you're constantly thinking about what you couldn't get done today. And I'm not saying couldn't get done because you were laying around on the couch, but I'm saying you're a pretty productive person. But at the end of the day, there's more to do than there is time to do it, right? This is a good example of the fact that maybe there's a control problem in life. 
Or maybe it's just that you don't even have clarity in these symptoms, but you just live in a constant state of frustration. Or maybe it's that you have people in your life who, in love, they're, they're starting to recognize concerns. They have, they're saying, hey, I'm seeing this in you, like you're a little tense these days, but you can't see that in yourself. There's some objective input about life that you can't really, you can't objectively identify in your own life. People are concerned about you in ways that maybe you don't even have the aptitude to be concerned about in your own life yet. Or it's when you become so preoccupied uh, with the various happenings in your own life, good or bad, that you stop thinking about your life in Jesus and the greater causes of his kingdom. And that's the interesting thing about uh, a storm like this is that I want you to think about this. Like, we're not even talking about Hurricane Harvey anymore. Half of te- I mean, half of Texas is still completely destroyed. But our media cycles move away from that. And in two weeks, we won't be talking about Irma. We'll be talking about the MTV VMA Awards or something dumb, right? These situations ebb and flow. And what happens is, is unless we keep a kingdom perspective in this, we are likely just to see things pass us by. Opportunities where we can honestly serve God and our neighbor where they arise. Or maybe it's that, uh, man, let's just go right for the jugular. Maybe there's just a general lack now, uh, uh, an apathy in your, your desire to love God by embracing the rhythms of gospel community and mission. You know, maybe being in the word is sort of just like an afterthought or praying is not happening or community is an issue or church is like, man, I got to get up early to worship. All of these things start to signify potential problems. And in this case, when we talk about control, if those things are driving you away from the family of God and, and, and God himself, if the God of apathy or anxiety is ruling you, you'll find that that is a very cruel boss to serve. And if you've ever served those two gods, you know that they provide you these endless lists of tasks that you can never get done. Apathy just makes you feel like you're worthless. Anxiety just makes you feel like everything is so urgent and falling apart that you just have to keep moving. And in, in moving, you just wind up imbibing this perpetual state of frustration and fear, blinding you from your own needs and obviously the needs of others in your life. And so what God wants you to know, what Christ wants you to know through a passage like Luke, the whole purpose of Luke is he's saying, I take care of it. That's it. He's saying, listen, like, you know, look at the splendor of Solomon. Look at how great his clothes were. And you got a shirt on your back. Or he's like, listen, food, that's pretty serious stuff. But I, I got this. And every single thing he says Here's a real situation, but don't be worried about it because it can't change your situation. It can't add a year to your life. can't do anything. can't change your circumstance. But trusting in me can change the way you see your circumstance. The reason living like this is so futile is a simple but powerful one. Like most negative and sinful ways of living, it's rooted in, in believing lies. And the greatest lie about the idol of control is that we're in control of anything. Simply put. This is exactly what Jesus is communicating to us in Luke 12. And I want to say this. Um, what he's saying in Luke 12 is not that there are not things that are going to stress us out in life. He's actually giving us some, some pretty weighty things. That passage implies directly there are things in life that warrant being anxious. There are things in life that warrant stress. There are things in life that warrant frustration. That's normal. However, to get stressed over those things in an attempt to control them is ridiculous. That's what he's saying. It won't change it. It won't add an hour to your life, and in many cases, modern medicine tells us it will take a few off of it. So throughout life, God doesn't want us to freak out because of our circumstances. He doesn't want us to give up. He wants us to turn to him. In the same way, we, when we believe God is good, we don't have to look to other things for goodness. He's the primary source of our joy. The same is true when we recognize God is in control. When we recognize that God is who he says he is, we can actually believe that to the point where we no longer trust in fear. We trade fear for belief. 
We give up a false sense of control and let the God who is in control shower us with his goodness. And I will say you've got to pray and discipline your heart to get back to the place where you believe this if you're not there right now. Ask God for mercy in this and know that he is merciful. He wants you to believe and to function like this. He doesn't want you to be afraid. He doesn't want us to fear anything in life because he is a great God. There's a quote I want to share with you from an author I reference in here a lot. He's a part of our larger Acts 29 network. His name is Tim Chester. And he's written a ton of books, really good books. And in uh, a, a chapter addressing God being in control and talking about fear and anxiety, he actually says this, and it'll be behind me. He says, we often associate the sovereignty of God with theological debates. That's why I opened my message with this. This is a coffee shop dialogue, but it's also one that has a very practical relational reality for us. We often associate the sovereignty of God with theological debates. But for all of us, it's a daily practical choice. For me, he's being transparent here. He says, for me, the issue is escapism. I have, a, I have to choose between a fantasy in which I'm sovereign and the real world in which God is sovereign between my false sovereignty and God's real sovereignty. When I feel like running away, I have to choose to find refuge in God. He's essentially saying, I'm a runner. And in running, I'm thinking I can control my circumstances. But that's fake. <laughs> in running away, I'm actually running away from what I need to be running to. Refuge in God. And so you see, believing God is great. is all about identifying the voice you listen to in life. This is a term I use a lot in here. This is a place where I want to instruct your hearts to listen. You've got to train your hearts to listen to the voice of God in, a, in the midst of a busy world, an often crazy world. Because God's voice is, is seldom going to be one that is kind of projected to you through a bullhorn. It is often a sweet voice, an inner voice, a voice that comes through his word or prayer, or just a subtle reminder in moments where life seems troubling. But it's one that you will hear if you listen. And by listening, I leave you sort of from the horse's mouth. If I could leave you with one statement today, it'll be this, what Jesus tells us in Matthew 11. He says this, think about this, the tension we've talked about between the troubles of the world fading away and really pressing into fear and anxiety. What I want to read to you is the literal promise Jesus gives us to deal with our anxiety and apathy. It's the literal promise he gives us to, to believe that God is great. In Matthew 11, 28 through 30, he says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He doesn't say, come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I'm going to make it all go away. He says, come to your burden, I get it, come to me. I'm going to help you find rest. And the way he helps us find rest is, it's the transfer of the atlas, right? He starts to bear the load with us. Because he's gentle and good and humble. And so which voice sounds better to you? Which voice do you want to listen to leaving this room? The voice that keeps you up at night? The voice that, uh, that likely gives you an early heart attack? The voice that makes you so stressed that everybody in your life is walking on eggshells because they're not sure where you're going to be or when you're going to set off. What, what about the other voice? Give up. Embrace apathy. Push your problems to the side. Remember, they're all still there. You might push them to the side, but they're still right there on the side. The pressure of knowing they're still there dominates you. Or do we want to listen to the voice of Jesus? Because that's a different voice. It's a voice that affirms reality, but also gives us hope to move through it. And so as we close this morning, ask yourself, do you really believe God is great? Ask yourself if you've gotten to this place in life where you trust Jesus as, as sovereign Savior. Ask yourself if you're living your life in light of that truth. Ask yourself, when you think of your world right now, is it, is it marked by fear and anxiety? 
or is it marked by peace and perseverance? Listen to the voice of Jesus this morning as we move into response time and ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you this morning and what is it you will do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this week, this morning. Thank you, Father, for uh, an opportunity to gather again as your people collectively to sing praises to you and to talk through the beauty of your truth. I pray now, Lord, in these closing minutes we have this morning that you would just use this time to help us genuinely hear from you. We have sung to you and heard your word. I pray now, Lord, that in these next moments, whatever decisions you lead us to make that help us to honor you and bless our world more deeply, I pray we would be utterly dialed into you and that we would be willing to listen and act. You love us. You are in control of our lives and you want what is good for us, good in your way. And so I pray, Lord, that wherever our hearts are out of alignment in those areas this morning, you would bring them into sync. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.